everybody, and welcome to the China Tech Investor Podcast, powered by TechNode, seeking truth from facts when it comes to Chinese tech stocks and IPOs. I'm Elliot Zagman, and with me is a man whose intelligence is anything but artificial. It's the real thing, baby. It's James Hull. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I think I don't know a lot of things. Let's just say that uh, I know I don't know a lot. Okay. <laughs> uh, Want to do the uh, do disclaimer? disclaimer? Yeah, you kind of threw me for a loop here. Okay, nothing said on this podcast <laughs> should be construed as investment advice or solicitation of services. We can be wrong. Our numbers can be wrong. Investing is risky. Speak with your financial advisor. Do your own research before making investment decisions. Uh, this is an information educational podcast. It's not investment mm. advice. Maybe I should just shorten it Educational. To that. We were using that term very loosely. Uh, yeah, yeah. But speaking of uh, artificial intelligence, uh, we have our guest today. Entertainment. Entertainment. <laughs> our guest today is, is Matt Sheehan from uh, Macropolo, the think tank at the Paulson Institute. He has done a lot of very, very interesting work on uh, China's AI space and China and the U.S.'s AI space. Um, he has a new book coming out about the kind of intermingling between China and California. And also, uh, he was uh, deeply involved with Kai-Fu Lee's uh, AI superpowers as well, and has been writing, writing some really, really good stuff uh, on the Macro Polo website, uh, just kind of breaking down China's AI landscape. We're going to talk about that. But first, uh, we got a few things to just go over. We want to talk about Xiaomi a little bit, but before that, we have a new exchange that is officially been opened. It's uh, the Star Exchange. So it's that um, the, basically China's version of the NASDAQ that we talked about with uh, Jackie Wong a few months ago. Shares went up 520% in their trading debut on the 22nd. Today that we're recording is the 23rd, but they're down again? Where? How? What is the situation with it right now? Yeah, so just reading a, a Bloomberg uh, piece here that all but four of the 25 new listings dropped Tuesday and with the market down an average of 4.5%. So hardly anything close to what it went up yesterday. But yeah, I mean, what I think, you know, we should expect some volatility in the uh, first the first <laughs> few days of anything brand new. Maybe a maybe. little. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, this is probably to be to be expected but also like the way the, I mean, the, the this is an interesting little tidbit is that the way the the uh, star board is set up is that new listings get five days of unlimited no limits up down limits of trading and then they put limits on so it's different than the other exchanges which have limits that are kind of double the limits are double for the first day and then they're brought down the second day to you know ten percent or whatever. So it's uh, it that's interesting. There's this a lot is, of this is going to be a roller coaster ride. It's going to be a roller it's coaster ride be, for this week all the way to Friday. <laughs> so, but they, but if you look at volatility, right? So Chinese stocks are volatile, super volatile, right? Tech stocks are super volatile in general. So this is going to be uh, you know. This is this is going to be a, a a lot of up and down, but but it'll be fun to watch. We'll see how this how this uh, pans out. So, uh, China's been doing they they've had many attempts at, at doing something like this. Um, we'll we'll see how it goes. Yeah. So we have done a podcast on this before with Jackie Wong. Um, I don't mm-hmm. remember exactly which number, but uh, that was a couple months ago, maybe. Yeah. 
Yeah, so one of the companies, I mean, some of these valuations are pretty pretty incredible. And I haven't looked that close into it, but just reading this sentence from the uh, Bloomberg article, Advanced Microfabrication Equipment Incorporated surged in its debut to a level of more than 730 times earnings, and it extended <laughs> those gains today. So... All right. Um, okay. It's pretty uh okay. pretty incredible. Yeah. Anyway. Nothing to see here, folks. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but also, uh moving on, Xiaomi, uh listed in Hong Kong, they're on our watch list. They have been added to the uh Fortune 500. Good for them. Even though they are trading at roughly half of where they IPO'd at over a year ago. Uh but they are down around Nine Hong Kong dollars, and I believe nine dollars was kind of where uh, where you pegged them at, is where you thought they should be. Uh, you know, when we were all kind of complaining about them being, uh, you know, too 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 highly valued um, or too highly highly priced. Do you think that they might be a, a good buy right now? I mean, I'm thinking about it. I mean, it's I haven't made a decision, but it's one of those companies that's, you know, you kind of, you know, you, you they're trying to do the right things. You know, they're trying to have an ecosystem. They're trying to do more services, kind of like what Apple's doing. By the way, I hope Apple realizes that, you know, they probably could make more money by allowing people to have nice upgrades to their, you know, phones that don't slow them down too much and allow them to keep their phones and don't switch to other uh, other providers. You know, if we want to get, I think there's a tinfoil hat theory out there that Apple's upgrades do improve impact the quality of your phone which drives mm. you to want to upgrade your phone um well they no they, they they've talked about this um tim cook admitted that he that basically they once you get to a certain point they kind of throttle the speed of the phone uh, and they say it's to phone. save battery life yeah. yeah but it's yeah exactly hmm. but anyways but xiaomi the thing that you know you're not you and i were talking about this uh before we started recording is uh you know I've been I you know, obviously I, I I write and kind of follow the whole Huawei saga a lot and Huawei's their their international smartphone shipments are going to be about fifty percent this year of what they were last year and now the smartphone market is is not the growth engine that it that it has been in the past but still there's a lot of room there for for Huawei's competitors someone's got to be getting in there and Xiaomi may be the um, one of the the, the most uh, yeah 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 the they might they might uh, win from this yeah also not just that but also like if Google does make it so um, Huawei doesn't get access to like the full version of Android they have to use the open source version it's going to make it even harder for them to sell in overseas markets whereas Xiaomi does have presence in some of these markets and their operating system is I think. Somewhat based, similar to Android, but it's called MiOS, and it's sort of their own thing. And I think you can install uh, Android apps on it, uh, APKs. Mm-hmm. So there is kind of it kind of bridges the gap a little bit better than Huawei. Now, obviously, Huawei- and also the the Department of Commerce isn't going after Xiaomi, so right. That that's also a yeah. plus. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but it, you wonder, like, why it, if? <laughs> yeah, I, you wonder if they're going to go after Chinese cell phone company. Why don't they? Presumably, it, 
it's what's the point? It's the it's network. It's the network capabilities, right? So yeah. it's not the not the, the consumer fact that, products. It's the right, equipment. yeah, 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 exactly. And, and the fact that I think also when you look at it from a competitive standpoint, uh, basically Xiaomi is like a, they make IoT devices that they make phones. When you look at Huawei, Huawei basically is a leader in every step of that value chain, right? Whether it be from the chipsets to the phones to the base stations, right, to the core networks. This is all Huawei, right? So the fact that Huawei can create that closed loop does two things. One is it makes, obviously, it means that they can basically dominate that entire you know, communication system, right? Which that's an issue with the U.S. and all, all the national security stuff. But second is that it allows them to basically cross-subsidize each part of that value chain, right? right. So if they're, if they're winning in one area then they can basically outbid all their competitors in another. So, um, so and if, then they're, that if they're winning in snowball effect, if they're winning in cell phones and selling more cell phones, kind of higher margin products, usually they can then take that extra capital cash flow that they're getting there and put it into lower margin project products, which tend to be commoditized kind of network equipment stuff. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I guess the other piece is that Xiaomi is kind of more endpoints, right? Because the phone is just mm. an endpoint, and then if you have the all the pieces in between, you're you're getting, you know, more traffic, more data, more whatever. Mm. And they, they, Xiaomi Xiaomi identifies themselves as an internet company, whether or not that's accurate. Yeah, so Xiaomi. I mean, it's it's interesting. I think the 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 bull case right now, and maybe it always has been this, but it obviously hasn't been working because it's dropped so much. But the bull case, I think, is still, you know, add on the Huawei piece, but then it's still, okay, they have services. They're going to, now it's, they're going to sell more phones because Huawei has issues, you know, so competitor kind of gets taken out, you know, that's helpful. And then the, the bull case is that services will end up being their profit margin, profit engine. And so the questions that we've raised previously on the podcast, I think still are there, which is, you know, what is, what are the kind of lower end users that buy cheaper phones? What is their value in terms of services? What's their long-term mm. value or, you know. But this another thing here is that when you look at the, long, the long-term value of those of those users, you know, Xiaomi has been kicking ass in India, right? Where that the value of those users, because they don't have the very high average incomes, is not as much, right? But look at Europe right now. So Huawei has been really growing in Europe in recent years, and even Central and Western Europe as well. But where 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 their users are wealthier, right? They have more uh, disposable income. If you cut a lot of those Huawei shipments. Xiaomi has been trying to get into Europe, right? So this also means that if that this is an opportunity for them to access users that actually might be spending more money mm. on those services. Mm. So that's something that's very interesting to me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it still would take quite a bit. I mean, one of the reasons they did well in India is they opened up uh, kind of experience stores. And they also, you know, I, I think one of the, I haven't heard anyone say this, but they... Because they're they're operate, you can if you buy. I used to have a Xiaomi phone, and if you buy it, you can download mm-hmm. their open source operating system, and you can like start playing around with it. And you can uh, jailbreak mm-hmm. the phone yourself. You can 
do all oh, sorts cool. of like cool like tech things that nerds like to do. And so mm-hmm. like the tech nerds, um, you know, are usually the people you go to. They're like the mavens, right? The, mm-hmm. You know, that you go to for questions about, hey, what product should I buy? Um, and if they're having a lot of fun playing with their Xiaomi open source jailbreaking stuff, they might recommend that. And I think that kind of has mm-hmm. been the case in India. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So that's kind of an interesting. Um, I mean, the, we, we, I think we talked about this a little bit when we had Dev on, yeah. and you know, I've heard it from others as well. It's just that that they really did a great job of accessing and that uh, kind of those kind of nano influencers, those opinion leaders, those that kind of early end of the um, the early adopters, right? These people who you know the IT workers that everyone has in their family. But who are they're going to ask? Hey, well, I'm going to ask cousin VJ uh, about what phone I should get. What does cousin VJ say? Well, cousin VJ says, you know, this, 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 right? So you got the the whole family gets a Xiaomi, right? Um, anyways, though, let's. Uh, anything else before we move on to our interview with Matt? Uh, I think that's all. Yeah, we got it. the interview is pretty long. Let's let's get to it. Okay, let's move on now to our interview with Matt Sheehan. Joining us today is Matt Sheehan. Matt Sheehan is a fellow at the Paulson Institute's Macro Polo Think Tank and somebody who has done some great work in looking at the relationship between the U.S. and China when it comes to AI. Matt, thank you for joining us today. Thanks very much for having me. So you've done a a, a lot of work focusing on the U.S. and China's AI landscapes. For business people, for investors, why should they care about AI development in the chi- in China and the U.S. and the differences between the two? Yeah, I think that whether you're focused just on the U.S. market or you're focused on the Chinese market or you're focused on third country markets, whether it's like Southeast Asia or India or Brazil, wherever, there's good reason for all those people to be invested in it, at the very least, keeping tabs on what's going on in the Chinese market, partly because it's a really rich breeding ground for new product ideas, new business models, new monetization models and all that. Um, but also because even if you're not necessarily interested in adopting those same models and bringing them back to your home market, if you have any aspirations for those third country markets, you're likely going to be at some point facing Chinese competitors. A lot of the Big AI companies are already looking abroad to apply their products and services. And so, yeah, kind of almost anywhere you look nowadays, you've got to have at least one eye on what's going on in the Chinese AI market. Yeah, so so Matt, you, you recently published a report about the five, you brought up five dimensions of data that are kind of crucial to AI and kind of comparing the U.S. and how they stack up with each other. Uh, could you explain the approach behind that framework and uh, kind of what your conclusions were? Sure thing. Yeah, I, this piece on data is really part of like a larger project where I'm just trying to take an analysis of comparative AI capabilities between the U.S. and China or other countries and just breaking it down into increasingly specific and well-grounded building blocks, conceptual building blocks, and then ideally putting data behind those actual building blocks as well. So. I've done that a little bit with my colleague Joy uh, Dantong Ma on talent flows. And with this data piece, it's a similar thing. This isn't, this is more of a, a conceptual framework for thinking about data in more specific ways that can hopefully get us closer to a better grounded understanding of how the US and China compare about on this. And in many ways, it started from the fact that conversations about US and China on data are just so broad and hand wavy to begin with. It's just, China, 
you know, billion people, so many smartphones, so much WeChat, so much data. But that really doesn't get you very far. That is not useful to either a company or a country, really, in that that level of abstraction, that kind of super macro level. So I started thinking more and more about, okay, what what are we talking about when we talk about an advantage in data? And what are different ways that a company or a country could have an advantage vis-a-vis data? So what I ended up working out was breaking data down into five categories. Those go from quantity. Uh, I'll, I'll explain each of these sort of uh, after going through them as a bunch. So it starts with quantity, then depth, then quality, diversity, and access. So I call these the five dimensions of data. For quantity, it's pretty self-explanatory, and it's really what most people are thinking about when they're saying those kind of hand-wavy estimates. Mm. This is the number of users you have or the number of purchases or the number of events, basically, that you're studying, that you're using to uh, create an optimization equation. So quantity, relatively straightforward. Depth, we're really talking more about how many different aspects of a user's behavior, how many different aspects of an event are captured in digital data. And so one way to think about this is just starting with the Chinese side of it, where in China, in urban China, so much of your daily life is funneled through your smartphone one way or another. That means that many more of your meals are in some way documented in digital data. Many more of your short trips are documented because you're on a shared bike or something like that. And whereas in the U.S., we... Companies like Google and Facebook, they have a lot of data on us, but it doesn't seep quite as far into our everyday Mm. actions and our everyday life. We tend to order fewer meals. We tend to do less transportation. We don't, we're not pinging around as much money as is pinging around Chinese, you know, WeChat wallets and Alipay and all that. And so you can think of each of those activities as kind of a window into user behavior, a window into what someone might want. Mm. And the more windows you have, the more kind of complex your optimization can be and really the more like well-tailored your product can be to an individual user because you don't just know what websites they visit, but you know where they eat breakfast and you know uh, where they ride their bike and you know all these different aspects of them that allows you to make a very finely tailored uh, recommendation for them or product. So that's depth. That's, it's one of the harder ones for people to grasp. When it comes to depth, is the fact that kind of the, how would I say this, like the the mon- kind of monopolized nature of the the, the Chinese internet giants, um, is that something that, that matters a little bit more? I mean, obviously, Facebook and Google are, are monopolies, but it, it, it's not like using WeChat, right, where everything in your life goes through it. So d- does the fact that so much of this stuff go through these singular super apps. Does that uh, give them a leg up on on data collection and how they can apply it to AI? That's an interesting one because at first brush, it very much seems like that. It very much because specifically so much flows through WeChat that Tencent you think would have a very, very multidimensional picture of users. When you actually get into the more specifics of their uh data sharing agreements, a lot of that data actually ends up going to the third-party operators Mm. of the mini apps or whatever's in your wallet. And so this is something we can go into more as we're comparing Chinese uh, companies. But in some ways, Tencent has what appears to be a very, very high ceiling in this respect, but the actual access to this data per se uh, 
is likely more spread out across a number of smaller providers of the different services. So it's an open question how, you know, how important is depth if one company hasn't sort of agglomerated all of it under their one umbrella? But at the very least, we can think of it as like a capability or a potential mm. that if, for example, Tencent came to data sharing agreements with all these providers or, you know, a certain number of the providers that would open up big stores of depth of data. Right. I mean, that, that, that is a theme that we often talk about when we, when we look at Tencent is how much is untapped untapped in that WeChat well. But anyways, let, let, let's continue. And I'll let you keep going through your, uh, your five dimensions here. Sure. Um, so yeah, we talked about quantity, just simply the number of users and events, depth, the different aspects of your life captured in data. Quality is the third dimension. And this kind of it has to do with how good is the data that is fed into your system. Like, are you accurately documenting what's going on in the world? And also it has to do with how is that data stored and what kind of databases, what kind of systems is it put into? You know, as a very simplistic example, if you're trying to build an AI algorithm to predict, you know, airpocalypse pollution events and all of your pollution data throughout history has been manipulated by local government officials mm. who have an interest in it, then your model, your algorithm is not going to come up with great predictions for when these are coming. So that's a very straightforward example of the quality of the input data. And it's also how is it stored? How is it kept over time? Yeah, and that's kind of garbage in, garbage out kind of models uh, piece, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Gar the, the first thing on input data is the garbage in, garbage out element of it. And the second piece is more about, have you been using enterprise software that's going to capture and store this data in a easily accessible and interpretable way? And are you going to be able to mesh it with other data sets? Or is it going to be just spread out across a bunch of, you know, Excel docs or worst case scenario, just like paper slips in a Dunway's drawer somewhere? Yeah, not even digitized yet. That would be <laughs> the hardest. If it's already... I mean, in some cases, if it's already digitized, paper slips in a Donway's drawer. Yeah, if, if it's already digitized, <laughs> you can kind of do enough ETL to kind of make it higher quality, maybe. But that obviously can take an insane amount of time and maybe a group of people's effort. But anyway, yeah. So next is diversity, right? Yeah, diversity is relatively straightforward to understand. An AI system can only come to understand and make predictions about things that it has seen many, many examples of. And those examples have to be relevant to the question at hand. So a very easy example of why you need some diversity in your data sets, depending on your use case, is facial recognition. If you train a facial recognition model on a billion Chinese faces, it will be extremely good at recognizing Chinese faces. But if you then try to apply that same model to an you know, African country or a Northern European country or anywhere else, it's likely going to struggle as it learns from new examples in those places. And so having the appropriate amount of diversity for the task at hand is really important. And, you know, for example, if these companies from the U.S. or from China want to take their services global, then it's going to depend what kind of data they have access to to tailor those products to these different populations. So this is another one where the U.S., has a pretty substantial advantage, both because of the diversity of the U.S. Mm -hmm. domestically, but also because it draws on yeah, a very, that's very interesting. global user base, at least the biggest companies here do. I got a quick question on that one. Is the diversity, I mean, is, is the data kind of the key piece there, or is the model that they've, that's built to do the facial recognition, like how long would it take 
you know, let's say if you use just uh, Asian faces, right, and then you want to use African kind of faces, would it take long to trans? I mean, to train the the data? I mean, I feel like it's just computing power. You should throw enough computing power; it could be done in a day or two or something. Uh, if as long as you can get the data, you have to get the yeah, images so and all that first, but then. Yeah, so the models, most of these models should start off relatively kind of agnostic about the input data. And then when you feed it certain examples, it gets good at deciphering those, assuming you have the right computing power and probably your engineers are going to continue to make tweaks along the way. And theoretically, yeah, you can just pour a bunch more new different data or data from a different country in there. But how did you get that data? Or like, are you going to immediately have access to it? So China, for many reasons, has access to a ton of data on its own people. But if they decided to set up shop in Portugal or something like that, they would need to find some way whether to spend money to acquire or to mm. themselves gather new, entirely new data sets on that. Whereas those might have a lot more overlap with the existing data sets that the U.S. companies mm have used to train their own models over time. So it's not an insurmountable hurdle. It's just a kind of question of where do things stand now and what would the different actors need to do to get onto equal footing. So I guess that's the next part is access. <laughs> Did we just kind of cover it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, access, and this is a tricky one because it could mean a lot of different things. It could mean which companies have access to uh, each other's data, where they're like data sharing agreements. It could be the broader like policy regulatory framework on what people can gather and store and what they have to anonymize and stuff like that. So that it's a pretty complex one. What I, in this model, in my first sort of run at this, I focused mainly on where I think China has a very clear and distinct approach and advantage in this, which is access to data from public spaces you know, basically the surveillance network throughout China and just having a uh, visual data on, you know, every major intersection in every big city is a very big deal because so many of the potential applications of this, the potentially nice ones, like, you know, optimizing your traffic grids and stuff like that, or optimizing yeah. emergency services and the potentially very nasty ones, like, you know, doing surveillance on your population and tracking Uyghurs across the country. That's all, depending on having a constant feed of visual, real-time visual data from a bunch of different places. And because the Chinese uh, security services and the PSB need to work with private companies to do that, they, mm. in many cases, come to different kind of data yeah. sharing agreements. And we usually don't have much insight into exactly how those work, but some of the some of the actors have a lot of data. And we know, at least with like Alibaba City Brain, Alibaba itself is pretty involved in this as well. So... We can imagine that this data is probably held by a lot of public sector actors and a police force or security services, mm -hmm. but it's also in the hands of a lot of private actors. So that's the, the part of access that I focused in on. But there's also a lot of other ways that we could interpret this dimension, depending on what the use case is. Well, the access thing, I think, is, is a super big question, Mark. Uh, when it comes down to the specifics, you know, the, um, you know, we could talk about this a little bit more going forward, but you, 
you basically uh, kind of gave an advantage in each of these categories to either the U.S. or China, right? So you had, when it comes to quantity, you had, it was even depth, it was advantage China. Uh, with diversity and uh, quality, you had the U.S. and then access, the, you had the advantage going to China. I, I always wonder about that because it, it is something that obviously, you know, if the government wants, it, wants data in China, the government can usually access it more directly and, you know, with, with fewer hurdles. Um, but at the same time, you know, I think anyone who's, who's ever spent much time trying to deal with Chinese bureaucracy knows that it is very, very, very hard to get, to get kind of, uh, you know, some sh- people to share resources uh, interdepartmentally. So I, it is a big question mark for me because it, it's something where you obviously could see they might know everything or they might know nothing. You know, it's that, um, you know, I think Paul Moser called it a Chabudwellian, right? <laughs> where you have this potential for this this terrible kind of Orwellian thing. Uh, but at the same time, there's all this, there's all this kind of, um, you know, organizational uh, and operational kind of um, not quite competence going on. So I, I do find that quite interesting. Yeah. Chabudwellian is a, is a great, I've been trying to basically explain that dilemma to various people that I'm kind of briefing on this stuff where, yeah, they, they, you can kind of imagine the perfect all seeing, you know, perf, quote unquote, perfect, the all powerful, all seeing surveillance state. And then you can imagine how this is actually running through a bunch of, you know, PSBs in fifth tier Shanxi or something like that. No, I don't, I don't think they're really there yet. I, I highly doubt that they've managed to integrate all these systems or even if they did manage to integrate them, having the computing power to process all that stuff or even at the first level, a lot of cameras throughout China, surveillance cameras are not, they don't have an AI backend component. They yeah. don't even have the ability to process this. It's, it's really traditional surveillance surveillance. Maybe they're storing all that footage and can go back to it in a in a in due time but we don't know i think it was maybe this year but there was data that came out from around liamachiao in beijing and it was just like one data point one place that was just capturing everyone that walked by is like phone and like oh that was terrible maybe even pick (laughs) picking up all sorts of stuff so it's like i wonder if there's just like these it's almost like they're silos right and maybe just very much spread out and there's a guy on uh, on Twitter who's released a bunch of this stuff. I don't I don't know who he is, but he's like is that Victor Gevers? No, the guy, his his name is like zero day or zero x d. Um, he's like he's he's like one of those guys that finds he found all these um, data sets. You just like scan a bunch of IP addresses and find out one of them's you know a MongoDB data like data point. And then you just try like the basic MongoDB like admin setup. First time you set up the like the default passwords, and you just get access to it. And he was basically doing that. But uh, yeah, I think it's this is kind of the point. The point that you're making, Elliot, is kind of broadly true across all these dimensions. And that this is, even though it's trying to drill down from the high level hand wavy abstraction, it's still at a very thirty five thousand foot level and. At, when you drill down into any given category for a country or a company specifically, it's always going to end up looking a lot messier on the ground. And these estimations of relative comparative strength across these categories is similarly like a first approximation. So in, in terms of quantity, this is the one where I called it even between China and the U.S. Because I U.S. generally tends to have a higher ceiling for its tech companies in that they have the ability 
to or the demonstrated ability to go global and access multiple billions of consumers, uh, you know, Facebook, 2.3 billion users, Google, probably something in that ballpark, whereas even the biggest companies out of China are something around 1.3 billion. But even there, you see kind of nuance and trade off in that China does have the ability to scale up its users very quickly because you can get to 700 million users without ever leaving your home market. Mm. So in all these, there's a lot of nuance. And I think part of the task of analysts is to just slowly, increasingly drill down and get more specific down to countries, companies, industries, applications and all that. Well, I, I find this really, really interesting. And that this is actually something that stood out uh, when reading this is that this is reflected in financial markets and the valuations of these companies very much. Uh, in that if you look at just when it comes to scaling, Masha Borak, when she, she was a former Technode um, journalist, now she works for Abacus. I, I remember she had a great piece uh, a year or two ago about just looking at the first hundred unicorns in China versus uh, a comparable set in Silicon Valley. And one thing that she found is that the the ones in China hit unicorn status in about it's something like like two thirds to three quarters of the time that the U.S. ones did, right? So they 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 got to a billion way more quickly, right? And this is this why you know this whole like China speed thing is so important, right? It's about they scale it as quickly as possible. But also when we look at the ceilings of these companies, James and I will talk about valuations a lot. You know, we look at Amazon's valuation versus Alibaba. If you just look at their their price to earnings, Alibaba can seem cheap because their their right their valuation, their earnings multiple is a good amount less than Amazon. So why is it less than Amazon? I think that a lot of it probably has to do with that ceiling. That you know Amazon people probably see that investors probably see that Amazon has a lot more room for growth. Whereas Alibaba has some of these kind of natural um, natural ceilings that are uh, that are there, but it's a, a great way to look at both kind of the AI landscape and uh, you know these companies as well. James, do we have, do we have other uh, questions about these dimensions? I don't want to take up the entire not not necessarily about the dimensions, but what you just mentioned. I have a bunch of questions on <laughs> okay. how this how this <laughs> what, relates what you... to companies and you know like I. I mean, if we step back and just look at AI generally, it seems to be something that's, you know, protects larger firms from being disrupted rather than is like a technology that leads to disruption from for like from smaller firms, right? And so it's almost like something that helps, you know, kind of the monopolies or duopolies and Facebook, Google sense, uh, and maybe Baidu, Tencent, Sense as well, kind of helps them get stronger, more efficient, enter new markets maybe even. Is that the case? Is, or is it, is AI, could AI be used to as a disrupting technology? That's a, that's a really good question. And I think there are clear aspects of this that support or reinforce monopolies over time. For example, the importance of data and quantity of data in many ways. Okay, these we have a bunch of existing platforms that have already been gathering this for a very long time. That's a big deal. Another big deal is computing power. It's really expensive, and these companies already have it in droves, and that's a, a sort of a barrier to entry for a lot of companies. There's the talent question as well. That's more of a mixed bag, probably between big companies and startups. I think when trying to 
figure out where it could be more disruptive and where it's more reinforcing monopolies, you probably want to think specifically about what kind of application it is. Because like the first sort of wave of a lot of AI applications was very purely internet-based and digital-based. Basically, use all that data to make a better recommendation for what uh, somebody, this person, this specific person searching for this specific word actually wants to see and specifically what kind of ads do they want to see or, or they like TV to click show on. Or, yeah. So those are, yeah, TV show, YouTube, all that kind of stuff. It's a very, you know, as a recommendation engine um, for these very commonly used services like search, online video, online shopping, I think you see that monopoly reinforcement going on. I think it's probably when you get to more niche products that you see a difference between the two sides in that while uh, Google may have tons of data in some sense on like what kind of uh, cooking someone does at home or, you know, inadvertently through their recipes or something like that. But is Google really interested in going into the market for whatever AI powered recipes for every individual person? Like maybe they are. But that also might be a small enough thing that it's just kind of not worth them shifting resources in that way. I think you see sometimes a similar thing when it comes to um, enterprise-facing AI versus uh, consumer-facing AI applications. This is something I heard talking to some uh, AI startup people in China, but they felt that Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent were kind of too busy to go after these kind of niche enterprise-facing things. Mm. They have already 700 million users or whatever number of users, and that's kind of their pool. Because for enterprise, you have to really work to acquire each customer. Mm. You probably need to work very closely with them to tailor the service yeah. to them and what they want. We've talked about that. And that's an area Baidu. where a smaller <laughs> company. Yeah. 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 I mean, Baidu, tons of searches have been done on it, and that's their that's kind of their great resource in some ways. But do they want to build, you know, some kind of AI routing software for taxi companies in third tier cities and where they have to deal with these people, like probably not. They're, they're trying. <laughs> well, and, and this is the big story that's not talked about that much when it comes to China tech these days is that, you know, Michael Norris has talked about it a good amount. Uh, Matt Brennan has talked about it when we had him on the podcast as well is about the shift to enterprise and how with a lot of these companies, they have to really reform their cultures. I mean, Tencent in particular. And it's like turning the Titanic around in some ways. You know, it's a, it's a tough thing to do. And I think, you know, it's, it's uh, like what Matt was saying, it might be more likely for uh, to have some of these kind of younger, more nimble startups, and then maybe they get acquired by an Alibaba or they're already invested in by Tencent or something like that, rather than something that these companies are, are developing on their own or completely reshaping their cultures for. But speaking about uh, cultures and people and the more human side of things, you've also written about talent pools of AI engineers and sci- scientists in the U.S. and China. And one thing that was remarkable in, in reading some of the work that you've done is just how large a proportion of the global you know, AI talent pool is is either ethnically or nationally Chinese, and how many of them are are either educated or working in the United States. So tell us a little bit more about what your takeaways here and what it really means for U.S. and China, both when it comes to their their firms and, you know, in the larger kind of political landscape as well. Sure. 
Yeah, with the talent question, that's another one of the sort of core building blocks that we've been looking for ways to sort of break it down further and, and end up applying actual sort of anal data analysis to the question. And with talent, it is a relatively relative to some question like data, it's it's more easy to get your hands around the talent question because a lot of the top AI research and really AI research sort of up and down the spectrum is published in international journals with people's names attached to it. And those journals have rankings of how prestigious they are, how selective they are and all that. So the approach that we took, which was uh, inspired in part by working with a guy named Jeff Ding, who runs a great China AI. Oh, yeah, we know Jeff Ding. He yeah. worked with us at MacroPoll. Yeah. He smart worked guy. with us uh, at MacroPolo. <laughs> he is a smart guy. He worked with us on this uh, China AI project, and Joy Ma and I have continued it on, where we take the AI publications at what is essentially the most uh, the, the most prestigious AI conference, NURIPS, or formerly known as NIPS. And we look at where did those researchers, where do those researchers currently work? And to our best approximation, where did they grow up or what might their original nationality have been? So we did that by looking at basically where they went to undergrad. Imperfect proxy, but specifically for if you went to undergrad in China, you probably grew up in China. Yeah. So, yeah, we looked at and within this framework, we also wanted to look at different tiers of talent who is the most elite, like the really best of the best, and who is maybe one cut down, because these have different implications for policy and everything. So with our taking our cut at the top, what we essentially call the top 1% based on the sort of selectivity of the conference, you see in terms of where these researchers are working right now, the overwhelming majority of them relative to other countries are working in the U.S. So about 60% of the most elite AI researchers are working for a U.S. institution, a U.S. company, or a U.S. Uh, academic institution. But if you break that down further by where did these people go to undergrad, what we think their original nationality was, the U.S. part of this pie shrinks by about half, from about 60% to 29%. And the Chinese portion, where only 1% of these researchers are currently working at Chinese institutions, that 1% becomes 9% when you look at where they sort of grew up and where they went to college. So that's the most elite tier. So when you move from this most elite talent, the top 1% down a tier to what we roughly call the top 20%, then the Chinese portion of the pie grows substantially. About 25% of these top 20% researchers grew up in China in some way. And then we look at where do they go afterwards. The majority of these people are still working in the U.S., but a significant portion of them are in China. So the rough kind of visual metaphor that I use or that I think of with this, if you think of AI research as a pyramid, um, the further you go down that pyramid, it looks like the more the greater portion Chinese researchers, Chinese-born researchers make up, and mm. potentially the smaller the portion of U.S.-born, U.S.-trained researchers gets. Mm. Now, what that means for policy and for governments and everything is very much up for grabs. Do we care most about this top, top-tier elite talent? Or do we care? Do we care about having like all of the top 100 AI scientists working in the U.S.? Or do we care more about having, you know, a very large number of sort of really solid, but maybe not the most elite AI scientists here in the U.S. and a whole bunch of different policy implications from that and how it interacts with the current trade war and tensions? Hmm. It's fascinating. And there's a lot of uh, ways we go with that. We could 
talk a little bit about different AI applications and maybe potentially touch on dual use things and how complicated sure. these things can get. But I kind of, I mean, I, I'm just going to take a guess. Tell me if I'm right or wrong here. But the title of your artic- article was Much Ado About Data. And I'm, I kind of might be reaching here, but is that kind of a jab at this whole like great powers thing and sort of like it's not, like it's not, you know, AI itself isn't really the key thing. It's, you know, actually more about there's more depth to the issue or, yeah, I don't know, maybe I'm reaching. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say, I'd say, I'd say if anything, it's a jab at kind of the way that we tend to simplify these things and just say, Data, China strong, you know, <laughs> talent, America good. Like, I think that we need to get a lot more specific than that. And there are many use cases where maybe data isn't really important. It's much more about having, about the talent you have or the computing power that you have. Yeah. In other situations, maybe these, the sort of science behind this is already commoditized. It's already published everywhere. A lot of people say that facial recognition algorithms are very easy to build, very easy to replicate at this point. There's still going to be many layers of that and doing facial recognition in different kind of environments and all this different stuff. But the question of what we should be thinking about is like the key, the key input here. What is key to maintaining strength or, you know, predominance in a certain area? It can very much alternate between data, talent, computing power, government policy, all that stuff. Mm. Yeah. It, well, well, one thing that I think is just from from reading the work that you've done, you know, the the metaphor that is so often used is like, you know, China is the Saudi Arabia of data, right? For you know the, these inputs into into AI, and that's the you know it's it's obviously a very simple and um, kind of good soundbite. Like, uh, data is that. the new oil, right? Exactly. <laughs> uh, but really, what what it, what, it's, what it seems like is that. You know, like oil is this uh, kind of commodity, right? A, a barrel of crude is a barrel of crude. But when it comes to both you know, data and talent, you know, there are all sorts of of different uh, you know aspects or elements that you're looking into, and it's really far more like a a a a, a broader um, kind of a, a set of natural resources rather than simply uh, just you know this one kind of commodity. But I, I do want to talk a little bit more about about talent here. So the, basically the, the, the trend that we see is that at the very top of the pyramid, like you said, we have a lot more kind of uh, U.S.-born um, and uh, researchers or scientists or whatever. And the further we get down the pyramid, kind of that, that upper middle and that middle tier is more and more Chinese. So the question that I have is looking forward, if it gets harder for AI researchers to be working in the U.S. if they're from China, um, is this something, and they end up going back to, to China to work for Alibaba or for Baidu or whoever, for that middle or upper middle tier, how important is that talent in your understanding? You know, is this something that, that could really be a, a pendulum when it comes to the, the AI you know, development strength of, of U.S. firms versus Chinese firms? Yeah, that's a really, really complicated question. I spent a lot of time thinking about this because... Almost any action that is taken in this realm has sort of two potential outcomes, at least two potential outcomes. And so when I think about, okay, if we say that currently 25%, one quarter of these kind of middle upper tier researchers are coming from China, 
but the majority of them are then studying in the U.S. and going on to work in the U.S. What what would it mean if we sort of erected a wall there? What would it mean if we stopped taking those people in? The question is, if you keep them all in China, do they still sort of rise to a similar level of capability and China has just gained all this talent? Or do they kind of need to come to the U.S. in order to reach that potential? Or could they reach three quarters of their potential in China and all in the U.S.? So it's a super complicated question. I kind of think about it in terms of at what point does China reach a a threshold at which its AI ecosystem is sufficiently self-sustaining that even if you keep all of the most talented Chinese people in China and they do not have access to U.S. universities, they can still sort of attain close to their potential in that way. And that's one that we just I, we just don't know at this point. I think that if you kind of take a, a very wide angle view and you think of the way that China has managed to bootstrap a lot of industries that we would have initially assumed they needed us for, they needed our model or our methods or something mm. for. I think there's a big reason for uh, being suspicious of this idea that they, you know, if we just keep them out, they won't ever learn themselves. But it's not, it's not a super easy question to answer. You know, like if the, if we say that these researchers come to the U.S. and then say they go 50-50, 50% of them stay here after graduating and 50% of them go back to China after graduating, is that a win for the U.S. or a loss? Mm. You know, do we like that we trained up some Chinese people who ended up back in China? It's, it gets very complicated. And this, you know, also glides over all of the moral, ethical, you know, right. dimensions of this. That these are these are people who are kind of, you know, we're hoping that they're free to live their lives in the best way. Yeah, people aren't slaves. <laughs> you can't and, just you know, yeah. force them yeah, to they're do not, They're not slaves. They're not. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, you know, it's. Yeah, there's a very human dimension to all these decisions, too. Like the uh, a lot of people that I've followed in my own research, my interviews in my own book, there are these people who are kind of always on the edge one way or another. They've got one foot here, one foot there. Or yeah. They're trying to make a decision about where they should be. And all these factors come into play. The availability of visas, where's their family, you know, how comfortable are they in these different cultural settings? It's, mm. it's It gets really complicated, but it's worth digging in as much as possible with the data that we have and then kind of supplementing that with all these other aspects. Mm. So from your, from your understanding, when it comes to recruiting and, and maintaining talent, because this talent is so important, you know, we hear about these, these insanely lucrative you know, contracts that are given to you know, these, these pretty uh, l- relatively low-level engineers. You see how much of a battle there is for talent. In your understanding, Who's winning and who's losing when it comes to this battle for talent? So if we look historically and really kind of as up to date as we can get with data, the U.S. is winning. Historically, about 86% of Chinese PhD, Chinese people who got their PhDs in the U.S. were still in the U.S. 10 years later. Mm. That window, that study was done like 20, what was it, 2003-4 to 2013-14 basically. And so historically, that's a huge win for the U.S. We're basically just taking these super talented people, bringing them over here, and they're all staying here for 10 plus years. Mm. That's, you know, that's great from the U.S. perspective. I think a lot of these incentives have shifted over time. You know, those people, they were pondering going back to China in 2005 when it was not nearly as fun to be a technologist over there. And the most up-to-date data that we looked at is I I looked at of these sort of mid uh, let's just call them upper tier Chinese AI talents who had come to the U.S. for a Ph.D. 
finished that PhD and gone on to work, I found that about three quarters of them were chose to work in the U.S., but that data is from a smaller sample size, so there's a lot more room for error. And it's also changing super quickly, like how a Chinese person might have thought about that calculus 18 months ago could be totally different from how they think about it today, given new visa restrictions, difficulty of getting an H-1B visa, mm. and just the kind of general climate of tension and hostility. So say it's, it's in many ways, you would think that this is a... Um, this this battle for attracting and retaining talent is kind of America's to lose, mm. but things are changing really quickly. Mm. Well, what about when, it, when we when we look at specific um, companies? Uh, what are, are do we see any any companies that are standing out and being able to really recruit and and, and retain this talent better than others, and or some companies that are particularly not doing well? Yeah, I mean the big global winner on this is Google. You know, Google, if you sort of break down these AI conferences by where, what specific institutions do these people come from, Google's almost always at the top of the list, followed by something like Carnegie Mellon University and MIT and places like that. So as a singular institution, that's that's Google's kind of win in the day. Tsinghua often ranks pretty highly in these uh, rankings. And, you know, if we kind of get away from the, the hard data about it and just look at more kind of the impressions that people who have worked at these companies um, give us, Baidu got off to a pretty strong start in this area. Mm. In 2013-14, they were very early on AI, uh, on deep learning specifically. Robin Lee was very early to recognize it as an important trend, and he hired some pretty important people, sort of culminating in hiring Andrew Ng, um, who's from Google, Stanford, Coursera, all the super mm. elite stuff. But over time, what I've heard and what I've seen from talking to startups over there is that you know the, the Baidu AI team, the people at the Institute of Deep Learning or the autonomous vehicles, they've basically sort of scattered across the industry, many of them going leaving Baidu to found their own startups mm. and uh, then compete with Baidu. So that's on the Chinese side. Uh, Tencent last year, 2000, late 2017, set up a... AI research lab in Seattle with the specific goal of poaching Microsoft talent, like the explicit goal of poaching Microsoft talent. <laughs> they don't want to leave. They're at Microsoft. They don't want to leave Seattle. So eh. their family's there. Their kids are there. They don't want to move. I mean, this is this is this is a this is a very consistent model when it comes to Chinese technology firms, though. Huawei. If you see where are their offices around the world, it is right next to the R and D centers for Ericsson and Nokia. It's. Uh, <laughs> it's, I mean, it's, it's pretty it's not, consistent, but it's not just Chinese firm. This is a strategy that all tech firm, all firms yeah. that are looking to poach talent, have to do because you're not going to set up in like a you know middle of nowhere town and try to and convince someone to move, you know, from San Francisco or Palo Alto. I mean, it's just not going to unless you pay. You'd have to compensate them massively, you know. Yeah, the scare the scarce resource is the talent. Well, I, I, I do want to touch on, you know, this idea of like, you know, getting people to move and, you know, Palo Alto and Seattle versus Beijing, right? You know, there's, it, it, it for anybody, anybody who's worked for, you know, a, a Silicon Valley company versus, you know, a, a Beijing tech firm, we know there's very, very different working cultures, there are different management styles. And I think in general, the, the perception is that it is, is a bit more pleasant to work for a Google than it would be an Alibaba, right? Just as far as the well, um, Google is a is on the 
on a totally different scale of even U.S. tech firms. They're like a university. Right. It's not even yes. But but as far as the perks that they give their employer, right. their employees, the the amount of flexibility that they give them, and just the 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 degree to which these firms are focusing on giving their employees an, a, a generally positive, you know. A, experience holistically. This is not something that you tend to hear about from Chinese tech firms. Uh, Matt, do you hear this kind of feedback from uh, from Chinese people that have been working either in, Silic- in Silicon Valley or in China? Does this matter or are they just like, well, who pays me more? Hmm. Yeah, so in I've got this forthcoming book called The Trans-Pacific Experiment about China and California. And a lot of it focuses in on the Silicon Valley-China relationship. And for those chapters of the book, I followed the story of a Chinese-born, U.S.-trained AI researcher who's who's one of these guys who's constantly making these decisions, constantly kind of cross-pollinating these ecosystems. He was a uh, AI, he was a machine learning PhD, a computer science PhD at Johns Hopkins, worked in sort of the first Beijing tech boom in the early 2000s, then came to the U.S. for his Ph.D. in artificial intelligence, worked at Google from 10, 2010 to 2012. When he wanted to found his own startup, he wanted to move back to China to do it. And talking to him and other people at his company who have followed similar paths, you can see a bit of a fork in terms of what, what do these people value. I think if you're somebody who values comfort, stability, um, you know, all the all the wonderful perks that like working for a company like Google has to offer and you're kind of okay with potentially putting a little bit of a ceiling on how high you might climb in these companies, yeah. then as a Chinese person, yeah, you, you, you might want to stay in Google. Um, if you want to found your own startup, most people or many people that I've talked to here who are from Chinese background and in Silicon Valley, they, they do talk about a quote-unquote bamboo ceiling. Yeah. It's the difficulty of pitching uh, to investors and starting a company and culture and all this stuff, even stuff as simple as their own visa and their own green card. That can be a lot more difficult when you're in the U.S. in Silicon Valley than Beijing, especially if you go back in time, even just like five, six years ago. If you were someone like this guy I followed named Li Zhifei, mm. when he left Google in 2012 to go back to China to found his startup, he was part of a pretty elite, relatively small core of ex-Googlers going back to China. Whereas in the U.S., he was a very talented researcher and he was kind of rising through the ranks of Google, but he was still one of a very large number of Chinese-born researchers. So when he goes back to China, there's kind of an instant upgrade in your status. You become Mm. part of this elite cohort. Investors really want to work with you. Big companies want to work with you. Even Google ended up working with him back in China to try to sort of as a bit of a backdoor for Google services in China. So... In terms of this kind of push and pull between places, it's partly what do they value, what are they, what are they going after, and it is it does kind of tell you something when the most ambitious people yeah. want to go back to China because they see a higher ceiling for themselves over there. Um, you know, that's it's something to consider when we're thinking about these flows of, of people back. And just forth. just to add a, like a, a quick anecdote to, about that um, is I've heard kind of the same thing in finance as well. That there's a bamboo ceiling there, and can I mean finance has a pretty bad history of being very much cliquish and along racial and religious uh, barriers. But any, anyway, yeah, just an anecdote. I, I've heard it as well, um, but it has so much to do. It's it's about what you can do versus who you know, right? And w- when it comes to what you can do, 
you know, the if you're a scientist, right, there's you can do well, right? You can have that director level position or senior manager position, right? And make, you know, high six figures at Google, right? But if you want to be something bigger, something better, right? That you're, who you know, that network, that, that these real questions about things like power um, really come into to play, right? So you look at somebody like Wang Xing from Meituan, Right. Who, you know, what was in the U.S. Right. He and then he was like, well, you know, I could get these jobs, you know, working in, you know, in the Bay Area or whatever, or I could go back and be, be this entrepreneur. Right. And I how much with a lot of these people, they don't have that access to capital. They're not in those elite circles in the Bay Area as much or maybe a little bit more now. But they but, you know, five, 10 years ago, they weren't. Right. And they go back to China and they can get access to that capital and they can really make a you know, make their dreams come true. And that is that is something that that really matters. There's another angle, and that's that, you know, at least from from an investor's perspective, you take a team of people who have a certain knowledge and have built up an expertise in something that maybe isn't even doesn't even exist yet in China or doesn't have that talent. Like they're become a scare they're not a scarce resource in the US. They're a scarce resource mm-hmm. in China. The value of them being in China and building something is through the roof. And investors obviously can see that they're willing to even back them to maybe even make the move. I mean, that you can, the, the, <laughs> there's, a, there's a few companies that have done that in uh, biotech that are, are very interesting. And now they're public, you know, in Hong Kong or the US listed. And it's amazing. I mean, it's it's amazing because you, you take the the people really have the talent, the knowledge, and whatever, and they might have like a non compete or something, and maybe there's a, you know, there's some kind of legal contractual arrangements they have to kind of wait for, but maybe not. And if they have that knowledge and they know how to build something, they should. I mean, you should go where the returns on your abilities, right? That's just a rational thing to do. Very rational, I think. Mm. But obviously it gets more complicated when you zoom out to the macro kind of dual use stuff and get into that area. But in terms of like creating wealth for yourself and your family and, you know, investors, I mean, (laughs) it's a great opportunity. And these opportunities are not going away. I mean, they still exist, Mm. you know, it's... Oh, there's also a like kind of in between that personal and that macro level thing. It's a question of where where do you want to make an impact? Do you want to build products and and services for for Americans or potentially for global customers, or do you really want to make an impact in China or where you grew up and stuff like that? That's something that Li Jiefei, the sort of ex Googler Chinese entrepreneur, told me. He said, "Yeah, I, I came to the U.S. to get advanced training to really build up these skill sets." And to kind of have exposure to what a, what a really great high-tech company looks like when it competes. How does it, what's the culture, all that stuff. But he said, you know, I always, I, I'm from China, I'm Chinese. I always wanted to make an impact in my own country. And that's a, that's a natural, you know, an understandable urge along the way. And not, not all people are going to come out on the same side of that calculus. Maybe some people care a lot more about political freedoms on a personal mm. level or their kids' education is obviously a huge one. And there's, there's risk aversion, education, environment, real estate, you know, healthcare, all these things kind of add yeah. together. <laughs> well, I, I'll, I'll tell you this though. 
if you are, as somebody who spent a lot of time around, you know, founders and CEOs in China, life is pretty good. If you are, <laughs> like, you, you're treated like a celebrity for a lot of these folks, you know? It is, if the option is to be just another, you know, engineer in the Valley yeah, mid, or to mid-tier be... Mid-tier engineer taking Right, or to SHIT be a celebrity in Beijing. <laughs> you could be a celebrity in Beijing, you know? That also seems appealing. Anyways, uh, we don't want to take Matt too long, but we're having a great conversation here. James, do you have more questions that you would like to ask? Yeah, I don't want to open a new can of worms, though. But I guess, Matt, is is there any like books you've read? I mean, you have a, you have a book coming out that looks fascinating, and we want you to talk about that. But is there any other books that you could recommend to our audience? Anything you've read that you know you thought was interesting, whether it's about China or really anything? Okay, books on it, not, yeah, not, not specifically yeah. on AI and data and all that stuff. Um, Make it even harder. <laughs> take a second on that one. Sure, yeah, something, a book that I read last year, which, you know, on the surface doesn't have anything to do with China, but it does if your brain's always thinking about China and immigration and culture and all that stuff. Um, last year, I read a book called The Best We Could Do, and it's, a, it's the first time I ever read a graphic novel um, of any kind, and it was about Vietnamese, uh, a Vietnamese refugee family that left Vietnam sort of at the very end of the Vietnam War and ends up in the U.S. and that whole journey along the way. And just for someone who never reads graphic novels, it was beautiful. It was very moving and touching. I just picked it up again recently as I uh, am kind of preparing to launch my own book, and I don't know why. It just kind of sprung off the shelf at me. And so if I have to plug a book, I'll plug that one for now. All right. Well, now we'll let you plug your own book. You didn't mention that that's, uh, that's coming <laughs> out soon. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. Yeah, the book, uh, it's called The Trans-Pacific Experiment, How China and California Collaborate and Compete for Our Future. And so it's a book that's it's really been building something I've been working on and researching and also just kind of involved with the issues for, at this point, about six, six years. Yeah, I'm from California. I grew up in the Bay Area for the most part, ended up in China after college, and then for starting in 2013 all the way through the present day, I spent a lot of time sort of uh, ping-ponging back and forth between California and China, partly for professional reasons, partly for personal reasons. And along the way there, you know, my first few years in China, I was entirely focused on what was going on inside the country. And I thought, you know, if you're in America, you don't get it. Like, you're so mm-hmm. far removed. You got nothing. And then uh, a, a broken ankle and a visa problem with the Chinese government left me kind of stranded in California for about six, seven months where I was a China journalist, technically, but I, was, I couldn't get back to China. So I started looking for China stories in California, in the Bay Area. And I, I very quickly realized that it's just there. California really is kind of ground zero for a lot of U.S.-China relations. Oh, yeah. And a lot of what I think is the most interesting and potentially productive, but also potentially sort of friction-inducing parts of U.S.-China relations. So obviously the China-Silicon Valley connection is huge hugely important and also now very tense. China and Hollywood have a, in many ways, a, a comparable, a similar dance between the two love, sides. relationship. They each want something. <laughs> love, hate. They both want something out of the other side. They both think they're sort of taking the other side for a ride, but very unclear who's actually, you know, leading here. Mm. And then Chinese students at California University, California is the top destination for Chinese students, top destination for immigrants, for home buyers, for investors. And so in the book, I use California as this window into what U.S.-China relations looks like on the ground when you kind of take Mm -hmm. it down from the level of 
WTO, tariffs, these relatively abstract things that we are often fighting over. So each chapter looks at a different one of these dimensions. Uh, what the experience of Chinese students, the China Silicon Valley relationship, Hollywood investment, real estate. And I try to follow one central character's story, um, someone who's kind of been, you know, in the trenches at the ground level of this relationship and follow their story as a window, ideally, into the bigger picture stuff. And so that was, in many ways, my entree into the China-U.S. tech relationship was first kind of just seeing it on the ground. Who are these Chinese engineers who are in Silicon Valley? Who are the Googlers who have gone back to China and kind of came into this uh, relationship that way? And uh, book's coming out August 13th, The Trans-Pacific Experiment, How China and California Collaborate and Compete for Our Future. So hopefully it's a fun read for people. I can't wait to read it. Yeah, well, one thing that I think is, one thing that, that I keep in mind with uh, with the China-California relationship is every every American city is basically whatever it sounds like in in English, right? In Chinese characters, right? Like Chicago, right? <laughs> right? For Chicago, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but 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 San Francisco, right? Is the old gold mountain, right? It's the the Zhou Jingshan, Zhou Jingshan. right? Right? But yeah. it, it it means it has this different. Uh, kind of imagination within the Chinese mind, or this different kind of connection uh, to China, uh, and I think that that's yeah. that's important to yeah. remember when looking at that relationship. Uh, yeah. Also, uh, for those who the California, for, sorry, keep going. Yeah, just the California. The California brand is super strong in China. Whether it's Jinshan, San Francisco, Jiazhou, the state of California, mm. uh, institutions like Stanford, Google. You know, these these are brand names. Even Palo Alto, my hometown, that I thought. When I was growing up there, I didn't think anybody knew about it. And suddenly I'm mm. in China and people are talking to me about Palo Alto. <laughs> wow. Okay. There's a lot of, there's a lot of between that and Hollywood and LA, there's just a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, very high brand prestige for California mm. over in China. And of course we cannot forget the California beef noodle king. <laughs> a real core of this specific relationship. Anyways, also, uh, for people who want to follow you on Twitter, social media, whatever, how do they do that? Sure, I'm on Twitter at MattSheehan88, and uh, I should be very soon putting live the website for my book, which will be TransPacificExperiment.com, and there you can explore chapters of the book and, and find different ways to sort of follow my work through newsletters and stuff like that. Awesome. Well, Matt, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. It was really fun. All right. Well, that just about does it for us today. Thanks again to Matt Sheehan for joining us. Make sure to give us five stars on Apple Podcasts or give us a star on Overcast. Just just give us a positive ranking, rating, you know, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, comments are always great as well. If you can leave those, it really helps us out. You can also follow us on Twitter and give us whatever kind of feedback you need to give us. Uh, I'm at uh, Elliot Zagman, E-L-L-I-O-T-T-Z-A-A-G-M-A-N. James is at James Hull X, J-A-M-E-S-H-U-L-L-X. And be sure to subscribe to technode.com slash newsletters as well for your daily dose of China Tech. A lot of really good stuff coming out of Techno these days. James, you looking for anything this week? Um, so in we're recording this on uh, July 23rd, and in one week, on July 30th, Aichi and Baidu are scheduled to release their earnings. That, that'll be interesting. As kind of both of those companies have, uh, stock has been down quite a bit yeah. recently. Yeah, what else? Big I pressure, think- big, big pressure on Baidu. I mean, they got, they, after they reported their first loss since going public last quarter, and, um, you know, we're going to see if they can turn it around. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah. 
the other kind of thing is, you know, we see more and more news after we did the podcast with Andrew Polk that was sort of in the middle and we were saying that it's a fluid situation and things are happening. That was the last episode, number 30. But one of the things that keeps popping up is, you know, the risk premiums, the spreads, interbank lending, the repo uh, market. And so one of one of the things just to kind of, you know, Minshung Group, Minshung Investment Group is... Uh, you know, there's some more news about them defaulting on some more bonds. Last in that last podcast, we did talk about how China Construction Bank had a standby letter of credit for Minsheng, and they covered uh, one of their prior defaults in this this year. I mean, they've been Minsheng Investment Group's been in the news on this for a while. There are other companies. I think my just the big takeaway is that look, you know, China's trying to. And we talked about this in the last podcast, but China's trying to fix the implicit guarantee that is pervades just about everything, but particularly banks and state-owned banks and and in financial risk. I mean, people expect they all things make a profit. When you invest, there's right. not much risk and everything goes up and to the right. And that's just not the way I mean, markets are supposed to price risk. That's their main job. Yeah. And so, you know, having interbank lending go up and down is, to me, something that should be, you know, we should be, when like, instead of throwing jabs at it and be like, oh, look, everything's blowing up. It's like, actually, they're tr- they're figuring out there's going to be some growth mm. pains in the, as they're they adjusting. determine, you know, what is the risk? Because right. previously, not very well-priced risk then suddenly needs to be priced as things happen that, you know, you didn't never thought could happen before, right? That's how these mm. things work. Well, there are a lot of people who have bet, who have been shorting, <laughs> you know, yeah. that they, they, they've bet against and they're, you know, they're waiting. They, they know that it's a, you know, it's, it's, it's a Jenga game, you know, where you got, you're taking one block out of the tower, then another, then another. And I think that, that one is, it's, it's just from an entertainment point of view or an interest point of view. It is more interesting to 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 assume the scariest scenario, but also, yeah, there are a lot of people out there who you know who who are you know bears on the China market, and they have um, you know maybe they've shorted the RMB, you know, and they have uh, some kind of interest in seeing it not do so well. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, there, there's another aspect, and I just kind of want to touch on this because it's not just China related. This is anything. Or like related to anything markets or investing, it's like for some reason when you talk about disaster and like mm. the, that kind of fear-inducing stuff, it's just so much easier to sound smart. Yeah, <laughs> you know. And a lot of people, if you're like selling something or you know research, sometimes tends to be more risk-focused. Uh, yeah, kind of like more negative. Whereas, like, actually, the way things usually play out doesn't always doesn't always work that way. But obviously, it can. Mm. So, you know. But the the intricacies and the, the what you can dive into on the negative side is just so much more appealing to kind of an intellectual point of view. Whereas, yeah. like, the upsides are usually kind of more boring and uh, tend to be simple. They sound simple and therefore mm. less complicated and therefore less intelligent. 
Uh, and, so and markets always... go down, go down fast and right. up slowly, right? right. So, so that kind of the those drops always make the news. You know, the kind of the, the crisis. And they'll come eventually. The that, so if you yeah. if you keep saying they're going to come, they'll you'll eventually be right. I mean, yeah, exactly. True. Right. Yeah. Eventually, there will be a wolf there, as much as you cry it, right? But, right. but I mean, and I think you know, I don't know, you know, we're we're in our you know early to mid thirties, you know, I know in our memory, the financial crisis was something that's kind of you know oh, a, yeah. probably a, a shaping moment, right? So it's something that I think in our generation, especially, like everyone's kind of waiting for it again. Um, and who knows? Right? But anyways, uh, anything else we got we got to talk about before we finish? I think that's it. It's been a pretty long episode, so let's yeah, it's uh, been a long episode. Let go. Thanks. Sorry, for Peter. <laughs> okay, yeah. Join us next time on the China Tech Investor Podcast. Bye bye now.